This is a CBC podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics podcast for Thursday, October 26th. On the pod today, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is bending on his carbon tax policy following outrage in Atlantic Canada. The Liberal government is axing the tax on home heating oil for three years and making free heat pumps available to lower-income Atlantic Canadians. We speak to an MP from Nova Scotia who pushed for these changes. And the power panel will weigh in on the political fallout of all of that. Plus, Israel conducts a targeted raid of Gaza as it prepares for a full invasion. We have the latest from our reporter on the ground, and we'll hear from Save the Children Canada about dwindling food and supplies in just a minute. We begin in Israel, where tanks rolled across the border into northern Gaza today. It was the Israeli military's largest incursion into the territory since the war began. The CBC's Margaret Evans joins us now from Jerusalem. So, Margaret, what's the latest you're seeing and hearing from Israel? David, as you said, uh, the day began with news of that uh, limited ground incursion by a column of Israeli tanks into Gaza overnight. They apparently stayed a few hours. They went in from the north, and the people who are waiting along the edges of that border for the start of a ground invasion reported a lot of the sound of a lot of heavy fighting. This, of course, will be a probing operation. Israel Defense Forces say it, they are preparing the groundwork for the next phase of the uh, war against Hamas. Of course, the air wars, the current phase, we're in day 20 of that, and there continue to be around the clock uh, attacks, airstrikes in the Gaza Strip. We continue to see these horrible pictures of uh, civilians being dug out of concrete uh, collapsed buildings. We saw also the very hard to watch images of a colleague, an Al Jazeera journalist who lost his wife and two children today uh, while on the job. So uh, it's, uh, it's continuing apace, if you like, as you, um, we also have heard that from the Israelis that they have killed uh, a senior intelligence operative from Hamas, but we're also hearing from Hamas, a Hamas spokesman saying that the airstrikes have killed as many as 50 of the hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. Of course, we have absolutely no way of verifying that information. Um, I should also say that the World Health Organization has been pressing from early today Hamas to actually provide proof of life for the hostages inside the Gaza Strip and the Israeli Defense Forces have upped the number from 220 to 224 people that they do believe are being held by Hamas there. Okay, uh, so Margaret, the, the other big uh, issue in the region right now is the humanitarian situation inside Gaza. What's the latest there? Well, we've been hearing for a few days now, particularly from UNRWA, which is the main UN agency dealing with Palestinian refugees, that they might actually have to stop work. And we know that uh, late this evening they were discussing whether or not they could actually prioritize um, what they are able to do in the days ahead. This is specifically because of a lack of fuel. The lack of fuel they say they need for their trucks. They say they need it for desalination plants. 
and most critical of all, they need it for hospitals to keep their generators running, to keep the incubators going for newborn babies and the life support systems for people who can't actually move to the south as, as the Israelis have asked them to do. So it's, it's extremely critical and people continue to call for a humanitarian pause. The death toll continues to rise. We did have Hamas, the health uh, ministry in Hamas, uh, issue a list of names today, more than 7,000 that they say are the people who have been killed in the airs Israeli airstrikes so far. That's in response to uh, the U.S. President Joe Biden saying a little earlier that we couldn't rely on the figures from the Hamas Ministry of Health. Um, so that also has happened. Of course, I should say that not everybody that works, I mean, Hamas runs the Gaza Strip, has a political arm, an armed wing, and it has a big bureaucracy. Not everybody who's in that bureaucracy necessarily supports Hamas. Margaret, thank you very much. That's the CBC's Margaret Evans in Jerusalem. Well, humanitarian relief agencies are concerned about the lack of food and supplies making it into Gaza. Israel's ambassador to Canada, Ido Moed, pushed back yesterday on the show against reports about dwindling supplies. Since the uh, uh, war started, Hamas has been telling the media that there is only enough for 24 hours, but that's, a, that's an outright lie. Uh, as first, no food shortage is uh, recorded and it's not expected in the near future. And so the same applies also for fuel for hospitals. They are rationing the fuel for hospitals and doctors don't even know if they have enough for the next 24 hours because Hamas will not supply them with the fuel that they know they Hamas holds. Okay, so what is the situation on the ground inside Gaza really like? Danny Glenwright is president and CEO of Save the Children Canada. Some of his team is on the ground in Gaza delivering humanitarian support. Danny, it's good to speak with you again. Good to be with you. What, what is your team telling you about what the situation is like inside Gaza right now? Well, unfortunately, since the last time we spoke, David, it's only gotten worse. We had the numbers, the latest numbers come in last night, which we're reporting on the previous 24 hours, and it showed that 344 children had been killed. So that's a sharp increase from the last time we spoke. That's one child being killed every five minutes. It's unconscionable. And we really, this is happening on our watch, and our teams are reporting the same thing. There is a shortage of food. Food is being rationed. We know that water supplies are dwindling in many places. They are out. As you said, there's huge shortages of fuel because there's been a promise of relief, but very, very limited amounts of relief and aid have actually been let in. We're talking about 62 trucks the last time I checked, mm -hmm. and that's over a span of 20 days when in normal times, more than 2,000 trucks would have been needed just to supply humanitarian aid into Gaza. So... It's increasingly dire situation, and there's been a sharp escalation in violence, and in bombings, in bombardments, and in children being killed. Okay, uh, th there's a few things I, I want to touch on there. Uh, I, I think act it doesn't change the situation much, but I think it's up to 74 trucks that have now made it in. But your point still stands that it is a very small fraction compared to what normally goes in. The statistic you just gave of one child every five minutes um, kind of takes my breath away. I, I just wonder if... Is that 
verified by your people? Is that coming from Hamas-run agencies? Because you saw what the president said yesterday, President Biden, that he doesn't believe the casualty figures or doubts the casualty figures. So I'm just trying to assess uh, you know, where that's coming from. I'm not doubting it. I, I just want, I would like to know if you could explain how, how you come to that yeah. math. It, it, well, we, we get these numbers from the UN, David. I can't think of another humanitarian crisis anywhere in the world where the numbers that the UN and ministries of health have provided are being doubted. And you can see the pictures that you've shown on CBC, the stories coming from, from our team in Gaza. We've got staff on the ground, we've got partners on the ground. And in every report that they send us, these are people who have lived through crisis for many years, right? These are people who have been through situations like this before. And everyone, the through line in all of them is something along the lines of, I've never felt so hopeless. I have never seen anything this bad. We're living through a nightmare. And that's not only our agency. Save the Children has partnered with 500 organizations around the world. And here in Canada, since we last spoke as well, we've teamed up with the Humanitarian Coalition to launch an appeal that Canadians can donate to at together.ca. And all of these agencies, including the UN, are reporting the same thing, that what we're seeing right now in Gaza is a humanitarian catastrophe. And you know what? The numbers are probably not accurate because we also know that there are as many as 900 children missing right now, unidentified or un unaccounted for, and they're likely buried under the rubble, which is really, you know, it's, it's a horrible thing to think about right now. And at Save the Children, that's what we're thinking about. We're thinking about the children who are under the rubble, desperately needing to be rescued, and nobody is coming for them. And those who are still alive probably are suffering from uh, being crushed, the dehydration, and unfortunately, because of the fuel shortages, you need fuel to operate heavy machinery that's needed to move large amounts of rubble. We're also thinking about the children right now who are in hospitals, and you need fuel in hospitals to keep children alive. As Margaret said, to keep ventilators on, to keep the electricity on so that doctors can see uh, when they're doing surgery, the incubators that are keeping young babies alive. We've got hundreds of babies still being born every day, remember. So, you know... The, the numbers are just numbers, but I'd like to put a face to each one of those numbers. And you see those faces on TV. I'm hearing them and seeing them in my colleagues. And Canadians can go to savethechildren.ca where we're posting images, videos, stories coming directly from Gaza. And they can decide for themselves. Okay. I, I appreciate the bluntness of that answer. And I wasn't acting because I doubted you. It's just because it has become, become a debate. So, so thank you uh, for engaging on that. Uh, I, I wonder if I can get your response to the clip we played coming into this interview from the, the Israeli ambassador to Canada who, who disputes the notion that there is a food shortage and, and a fuel shortage in Gaza and makes the point that Hamas has these tanks full of fuel and if the hospitals really need the gas, Hamas can provide it to them. They say they verified from people they know inside Gaza that this is in fact the case, that there is fuel there. What, what is your understanding from the aid groups and, and people you speak with? Again, here's what we know. In everybody we speak to, in every story coming out of Gaza, we are hearing stories of electricity out, of generators not able to operate because there's no fuel, of cars not able to operate because there's no fuel. Now, just remember, the Gaza Strip has enough people in it comparable to the size of Vancouver, so around 2.2 million people. But it's, in square kilometers, half the size of Vancouver. So 100 aid trucks daily in normal times, just to keep 80% of the population alive, but about 500 trucks go in daily in normal times to provide things like fuel. So this is a huge amount of fuel needed to keep this, this population running. And, you know, I can't speak to if there's fuel sitting there not being used. But what I can say is in all the reports we're getting from Gaza, from hospitals, from centers where people are sheltering, 
from bakeries. Uh, I, I, saw, I heard a story last night on CBC about bakeries that are unable to bake bread, those few that remain that haven't been damaged, because there's not enough fuel to run the ovens, to, to run the desalination plants, to work the water pumps. What we're hearing is that children are sick because they're drinking unclean water, which means that the water pumps and the desalination plants aren't working. So all I can say is what I know from my colleagues right. on the ground and what they're telling us is it's an increasingly dire situation and it's a humanitarian catastrophe. And all the other reports I see on CBC and elsewhere are, are backing that up. No, uh, Samer Abdel-Jabber from the World Food Program, who oversees the operations in Gaza, has been on the show uh, multiple times since it started. And he gives the same explanation as to what's happening in the bakeries, because many of them are contracted to work with his organization, and they've just had to stop baking be- because of the shortages you talk about. So, so while this is happening, the airstrikes continue. Uh, we saw tanks make an incursion into the Gaza Strip right now, uh, and the Prime Minister Netanyahu has said the ground invasion is coming. We don't know when and exactly in what form. How does this continued and escalating military operation affect the work your team is trying to do uh, in there and and the larger challenges uh, of humanitarian aid? Well, you know, the challenge right now, as I told you when we spoke last, is getting aid in is one thing, but being able to distribute it safely is quite another. And we're unable to do that right now. There is no safe place in Gaza. I heard from one of my colleagues uh, just over the last 24 hours, and he was one of those that fled from the north of Gaza to south Gaza when told to do so, but only brought enough for a couple of days and had to go back recently to collect some items from his house. And also because where they were staying in south Gaza had been bombed, so they had nowhere else to shelter safely. And he said just in going back uh, with the limited fuel that he had remaining in his car, and he has a two-year-old, he said the sky was so clouded with dust and with fire and with smoke from the bombardments that they couldn't see the sun. It completely blocked out the sun. He said it felt like he was in an alternate universe. So what we know is that there is really no safe place right now to distribute aid if it does get in there, which is why Save the Children, along with many other agencies, we continue to call for a ceasefire. That is the only way we're going to be able to get supplies to those who need it most, keep children alive, and rescue those children who are trapped under the rubble, as well as get the essential medical supplies that are needed to those kids right now in hospitals who, in some cases, we continue to hear reports of children who are having amputations or having their bones fixed without any painkillers or anesthetic. Uh, Danny, just as a final point, uh, I'm sure you're well aware that the Canadian government is not endorsing the position of a ceasefire, neither is the President of the United States, the UK, and a lot of the key Western allies uh, for Israel. But they are advocating for humanitarian pauses, uh, you know, temporary uh, ceasefires, uh, time-limited ones, to allow aid to get in. Is that good enough in your view? How hopeful are you that we can even see something along those lines, uh, based on where things have been? You know, whatever we want to call it, a ceasefire, a pause, it is essential right now. It's needed. There's been 20 days of these constant bombardments. And if we don't have a pause, many more lives will be lost. And that is what's worrying us the most right now. So I implore the Canadian government to reconsider its position, to call for a ceasefire, because what's happening right now is unconscionable and it it will haunt us. Danny Glenwright, always appreciate the time. The president and CEO of Save the Children Canada. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Today, we are announcing a three-year pause on the federal pollution price on heating oil so that we can give everyone the time and ability to switch to heat pumps. One more thing, today we are doubling 
from 10 to 20%, the rural top-up that people get as part of their quarterly pollution price rebates. Because if you live in a rural community, you don't have the same options that people who live in cities do. A major announcement last hour from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. He's overhauling his carbon tax policy following outrage largely in Atlantic Canada. Joining me now, one of the Liberal MPs who pushed for the change, Cody Boyce. He is the chair of the Liberal Atlantic Caucus. Cody Boyce, welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thanks to be here. So the pause on home heating oil is a national policy. The rural rebate is a national policy. But let's face it, the home heating oil issue is an acute one for Atlantic Canada. The Prime Minister said, we heard you. How much of this is about politics versus policy? No, look, at the end of the day, uh, this has been something that I've been on the record for the whole time, uh, for the last year and a half, David, of saying we believe in the intent of the carbon price policy, particularly at the federal backstop level, uh, but we wanted to see adjustments. And particularly, as I mentioned in my remarks today, Atlantic Canada is, by and large, a rural region of the country. And with today's announcement, we're finding equity in how we deliver the programs. Uh, on the heat pump program specifically, we're going to be working with Nova Scotia, Prince Rhode Island and Newfoundland in a pilot initiative, but it's important for your listeners to know that actually a year ago, we introduced $250 million to the Low Carbon Economy Fund to help people across the country. So yes, today is a further initiative in a part of the country where we're very vulnerable, but there's already federal support to help people elsewhere in the country as well. There were a lot of MPs there behind the Prime Minister, you and a lot of Atlantic MPs. The Environment Minister, Stephen Gobeau, nowhere to be seen. He was in Ottawa today. He had a news conference at 1230. Why wasn't the Environment Minister there? The Environment Minister played a really important role in helping to shape this policy. As I said in my remarks, uh, Jonathan Wilkinson, Christia Freeland, those were the three departments that were really involved. But as you noticed, it was all Atlantic members of Parliament and the Prime Minister. Uh, so I, I wouldn't read too much into that. And People are going to read something into that. Well, you think? It, it, not, not having your, your the, you know, Ken McDonald sat there and said Stephen Gubo was a problem in, well, in Atlantic where was Jonathan Wilkinson? Would you suggest Jonathan Wilkinson? I mean, this he was is in Alberta at an energy summit. But I was just wondering, sure. the Environment Minister was in Ottawa today and he wasn't there. I so. can promise you that he'll be supportive of this. He played a key role I worked with him closely, and as I said, uh, our caucus worked closely to make sure that we could deliver for Atlantic Canadians, but indeed all Canadians. And that's the one thing I want to make sure, David, that doesn't get lost in today's announcement. We moved the rural rebate from 10% up to 20 That matters for people living in foothills in Alberta. That matters for people living in uh, rural Ontario. Uh, the program specific to heat pumps is a pilot in Atlantic Canada, but other premiers who want to get on board, I'm sure the government of Canada would be willing to partner. Okay, yeah, because there is the base rebate, and then if you live in a rural area, it's a jump of 10 percent and yeah. now so that that top up is actually 20 percent on top of it i, I want to touch on a couple of things there uh, you, you mentioned the the heat pump pilot program that, yeah. that is being discussed newfoundland and labrador nova scotia pei Where's New Brunswick? Are they going to get on board it's with this? Great question. I would love to see Blaine Higgs get involved. Uh, this matters in New Brunswick as it does uh, in all four Atlantic provinces. So that's a question for Blaine Higgs and the Premier and the government of uh, New Brunswick. But we're willing partners. And as the Prime Minister mentioned, hopefully it will be four very soon. And like I said, David, other provinces that want to get involved, I think there's an open uh, olive branch there from the government of Canada to say, let's make sure we're focused on your needs. Okay, so the way this is going to work for people who are catching up on this is the Prime Minister said today that they're uh, piloting a program to give free heat pumps yeah. to households who make at or below the median household income in Canada. Rough math that varies from province to province was between sixty and seventy thousand dollars. Is that what we're talking about in household income for the region? Is that sure? I look, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, but those that go, can, you know, on statistics Canada can find the median income. What it represents is about a twenty thousand dollar grant. And you'll remember, David, we rolled out programs of five thousand. Uh, we increased that to ten thousand in some cases. But you know, if you're sitting at home, uh, this is about a twenty thousand dollar project, and some people have the means to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, we want to be there to help support that transition, and that's exactly 
exactly why uh, we're working with the provinces to do just that. So what's the scale of the ambition there? Like how many homes use home heating oil or have inefficient heating uh, sources in Atlantic Canada are below the median income and, and want to get to a heat pump? Like how many houses are we talking I, about? I don't have the exact numbers here, but it's the principles of what we're chasing. As I mentioned in Nova Scotia, David, uh, it's about 40% of households are still on home heating oil. Uh, we want to try to take that number as close to zero as possible because at the end of the day, it's good for the environment, it's good for the economy, and it's also good for affordability. And we're working to help make that transition. One thing I want to mention to your listeners as well, though, it's not just uh, a $20,000 grant, which is essentially a free heat pump for individuals. Any individual above the median income, we're changing the green Greening Homes Initiative that people can borrow capital up front without spending a dime to be able to make a difference. And, and I want to contrast this. David, because Pierre Polyev is in Atlantic Canada right now. Uh, and as I said in my remarks, he's not offering solutions. He's channeling people's frustration, anxiety around affordability. He's offering simplistic solutions without the long-term benefit of what the Prime Minister just announced today. But there is a lot of frustration and anxiety in Atlantic Canada. Every time I go home to, to St. John's, I am shocked at how upset people are in a place where the Liberals have always been so strong. So he's tapping into something there. And he's already reacted to this announcement saying... This is only happening because your polls have plummeted. I mean, what's your response? It's to happening because the Atlantic Liberal Caucus got involved. And, you know, when you ask that question, uh, when I sat in the House of Commons for four years now, the Conservatives don't offer any solutions. They are not interested in keeping any form of carbon pricing. They want to get rid of it altogether. Uh, we're of the view, as I've said on record, of walking this midway line of saying we believe in the intended policy, but it needed to have some adjustments. And that's exactly how the Atlantic Liberal Caucus helped deliver that today. So I want to touch on something else the Prime Minister said today in, in the question and answer component of the announcement. Um, the way the rebate system works yep. under carbon pricing is the money that is collected from a specific province, let's use Nova Scotia, for example, as, yep. as the one you know best, is rebated. Yep. And eight in ten people do better than, uh, than make up better than they lost. But he said today, because of the pause on the carbon tax on home heating oil, they will be taking in less money over the next three years, so the base rebate will go down. Yep. Now, I know this is partially offset in the rural areas because of the doubling of the subsidy from, from 10 percent to 20 percent. But this means people in Halifax who may burn oil are going to get a smaller rebate than people in, say, Cape Breton, which would fit into the rural area based on what the price is. David, this means people who are in Halifax that burn oil Mm. are going to have a program where we're going to pay $250 to incentivize you to join it, and we're going to give you a free heat pump to actually save energy on your home heating bill. I don't see how this is a problem. Yes, the overall aggregate of the price uh, rebate might come down slightly for a year. Remember that price increase for three years. uh, For three years. Um, But at the end of the day, we're delivering a program that's actually going to help people make that transition. And that's what the Prime Minister talked about very clearly clearly in his remarks. But he also billed this as an affordability measure today. So if, if, if the cost goes down and the rebate goes down, those people aren't actually further ahead. We're saving, there's people that are vulnerable in Atlantic Canada, 40% of the households in my province um, are still on home heating oil, mm-hmm. and we're offering people solutions. Uh, if you don't have an ability to change behavior, uh, then the policy can be punitive in a way, and that's what the Prime Minister said. We're delivering a program that's not only going to help people today by exempting the carbon price this winter, but at the end of the day, making sure we have programs to help make that transition long term to be more affordable than uh, what they're paying right now just on the regular market price of uh, home heating oil. There's going to be criticism and pushback on this, that you're car- creating, when you create exemptions uh, to, a, to, a, to a tax policy that is meant to send a market signal to force people to change behavior, uh, you set a bad precedent and maybe the better policy solution is to 
increase rebates as a way of, of helping people who have no market option as, as they do in, say, some of rural uh, parts of Atlantic Canada and the rest of Canada. So what do you say to people that this is an undermining and a watering down of a signature environmental well, David, policy? David, you're from Newfoundland and Labrador, and I, it's funny. When I was listening to some of the national media today, they said, well, is this a walk back on climate? Absolutely not. This is about adjusting a national policy to ensure there's equity across the country. It's part of the reason why, as a rural member of Parliament, I push for a higher rural rebate, to your point, about making sure that there is an ability to recognize the lived differences on the carbon price as it relates and exempting on home heating fuel. We're not exempting forever. We're doing three years. And then I, you know, I could maybe agree with the premise of saying that we were stepping back if we didn't put a program that actually helps on the supply side to get people incentivized to change behavior right. and actually do it. And so this is not a step back on climate whatsoever. That is a narrative that is going to be driven maybe from certain parts of the country that don't understand regional differences. But, but you say 40% of households in Nova Scotia are still on oil. Correct. correct. Is that the correct number? Approximately. I, I, uh, one of the, I had a, an oil tank on my house in St. John's when I lived there, and it was insanely expensive when oil was up. It was like six, eight hundred bucks a month yeah. to heat your house. Um, that's a lot of heat pumps that need to be installed in a place where they may not have the people who can do it. Yep. This is one of the, the limiters on this transition in the smaller and more rural areas. So how do you overcome that obstacle to achieve this policy goal in three years to do heat pump installations at scale. Well, you, you exempt for three years to give time for the policy to work out. You partner with provinces like Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland who are going to be able to work uh, to be able to do and deliver this program. And we'll reevaluate it in 2026. If there's a need to make further adjustments at that time, we'll deal with it. But at the end of the day, today is great news for Atlantic Canadians, indeed Canadians from across the country, particularly rural Canadians, where I think the government has done a great thing where they've listened to the program and the policies that are in place, made adjustments to better reflect regional and rural realities, and then also put programs in place to help people make a transition to fight uh, climate change and affordability at the same time. Just one last question on the politics of all of this. There's no change in the clean fuel standards, so gas prices are still going to go up, and I, that's, I know well, you that's you got to give me time for this, David. So, look, uh, we <laughs> yeah. saw a question on that to the Prime Minister. Yeah. A couple things I would say. The Premiers have talked about that in Atlantic Canada. What they don't talk about is the clean energy projects that are actually happening. If the Premiers want to come in and cut the mode of fuel tax to actually help ensure that that policy does not actually result in increased costs at the gas pump, they can. These are also regulated utilities, and I think we're always going to be willing to work uh, with different uh, provinces and uh, entities to ensure that there's fairness and equity. Okay. Cody Blois, thanks for coming. I appreciate your time. Thank this you. Cody Blois, the chair of the Liberal Atlantic Caucus. The federal government bends on its climate change policy for rural Canadians. Today, we are announcing a three-year pause on the federal pollution price on heating oil so that we can give everyone the time and ability to switch to heat pumps. The government will also double the carbon tax rebate top-up for rural Canadians beginning in April. So will this be enough to shift liberal political fortunes in rural Canada, especially in Atlantic Canada? Let's bring in the power panel. Stevie O'Brien is a senior advisor at Macmillan Vantage. James Moore is a senior advisor at Denton's and a former Conservative cabinet minister. Andrew Thompson is a former Saskatchewan cabinet minister, now chief of government relations at the University of Toronto. We're hoping to connect with Shachi Curl at the Angus Reid Institute. Uh, but while we wait for Shachi, Stevie, I, I want to start with you. I, I mean, look, this is a national policy change, mm -hmm. but this is driven by political concerns in Atlantic Canada, pressure from Atlantic premiers, and pressure from Atlantic MPs. What do you make of this move by the Liberal government today? Well, there's, 
I'd say that this is about two things. It is about adapting a program to account for regional differences, and it's also about winning Atlantic seats. It sure is. And <laughs> I think that one of the things that's very clear about that and how important Atlantic seats are going to be in the next election, uh, you just have to see that the leader of the opposition today chose to attend a rally in Nova Scotia is instead of a briefing with the leaders of all the parties on Gaza. So Atlantic Canada is critical, and I think uh, today's announcement demonstrates the Prime Minister is listening to caucus and is uh, adapting and being flexible. Well, well James, that's what the, uh, the Liberal leader said he would do after the Liberal caucus met in London, Ontario earlier this year. What, what do you make of uh, this policy shift uh, by the Prime Minister and his team? Well, it's a three-year pause on policy, but I hope it's that therefore signals a uh, an eternal pause on the self-righteous rhetoric that unless you believe in, in in carbon pricing and carbon taxes, then you don't believe in the fight against climate change. I mean, you know, let's let's imagine back the past 30, 60 days, um, frankly, in the prime minister's office that led to this decision. So you're saying we're down by nine points in Newfoundland and Labrador. We're down in every province across the region. Wow. So we have backbenchers who are upset. There's rumors that Ken McDonald might cross the floor. Peter McKay is coming back. Well, then I guess we better do something. Uh, you know, so so the rhetoric that we've been living with now for almost a decade about you know carbon pricing is is an, an essential principle that must never be breached. That this is fundamental to the future of the country. And if you don't believe it, then you don't respect the 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 obligations that we have to the planet and to fighting climate change. Well, if poll numbers get bad enough, then all that can be parked. I, I, I should say, because you, you named him, I texted Ken McDonald earlier today because it was on the show that he had that very vocal criticism. He says he's happy and he's going he's gonna to join us tomorrow to talk about it. Uh, so, Andrew, uh, what, what's, your, what's your take on, on what happened here today? Well, it certainly does seem like they got the memo. The, the Liberals have fallen into third place in Atlanta, Canada. They can't afford for that to happen. Atlanta, Canada is core to them being able to form a government again. Uh, but this is also a pretty major admission that, that the, the the program that was designed was, in fact, biased against rural Canadians, uh, that it had not built in enough supports to manage the transition as much as the government was talking about transition. There was no real way for people to, to, to take advantage of that. They're trying to correct for that. Um, it's, it's a good question as to whether when governments back down on these kind of policies, whether they get credit for it or whether the problem just goes away. Uh, either way, the government will probably benefit from that somewhat politically. I'm not sure that there's a lot uh, here. Uh, you know, certainly the the finger wagging that'll come from the uh, the conservatives about how they shouldn't have ever done this to start with resonates with some. But at the end, people just want a government that's not uh, adding to their cost of living and that seems to be listening. That may be the saving grace for the Liberals on this. Yeah, and, and Pierre Polyev is in Windsor, Nova Scotia, having a rally as we speak. He'll be in my hometown of St. John's, uh, Newfoundland, uh, tomorrow night uh, at a big hotel in, in the downtown. So, Stevie, you know, j just on this, I mean, starting in 2015 with the 32 for 32 sweep of seats in Atlantic Canada, you've been a chief of staff to ministers in this government. They've been criticized as having too much of an urban lens on things, right? And this policy has been criticized, you know, from my neck of the woods in that people in rural Atlantic Canada, they can't switch to transit, they, they can't afford to put in a heat pump. Uh, I mean, is this a recognition they've had a bit of a blind spot on this, or is this just responding to a political dynamic? Uh, maybe it definitely has political uh, elements to it. But I th 
what I like about this announcement is that it's not just a pause on a policy. It's a pause with a plan to accelerate change. It, the, the, the accelerated program to bring people um, into off of home heating oil. Um, it's, it's a policy that is about making it affordable to live and affordable to be green. And so I think that those are consistent with the Liberal messaging since 2015. And what I also mm-hmm. like is, is the need to adapt to regional differences. And maybe we will see in the next little while uh, additional adjustments that may be needed to a policy as it spreads out across a country that is so diverse as Canada. Downtown Toronto is not the same as rural Atlantic Canada, is not the same as uh, the far north. So yeah. the programs need to be adjusted. Yeah, no, the, the market signal in Toronto versus, say, Trapassi, which is on the, the, the Avalon Peninsula, a totally different kind of thing. Uh, the, 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 the heat pump program you're talking about is an incentive and a pilot program to give free heat pumps to people who make uh, below the median Canadian household income, uh, which is ambitious considering the private sector's capacity to deliver that many heat pumps, so we'll see if that can happen. Uh, but joining us now is Shachi Curl, the president of the Angus Reid Institute, so better late than, than, than never, Shachi. It's good to have you. So uh, I think we started a bit earlier than you're expecting, so I'll take the, I'll take the L for that one. Well, what's your take on what we saw today uh, on, the, on the climate policy change here from, uh, from, from Prime Minister Trudeau? Actually, I've been right here the whole time, David. Oh. Saying, I'm right here, I'm right here. So it's, it's good to be here. All right, well, all right. <laughs> Having a chance to, to listen in on the conversation. Look, this, this Liberal government has always been fairly good and adept at course correction when it's needed to be good and adept at course correction. It's had a problem in Atlantic Canada politically for a while where Justin Trudeau's disapproval has been at nearly two-thirds, 64%. Uh, the region is now splitting and, it, and as James pointed out, in some cases leading uh, for the Conservatives in terms of vote intention. And it's a region that the Liberals need to be able to count on come an election uh, in order to counter some gains that will come in places like the 905 and, and suburban Metro Vancouver. So uh, here's the course correction. However, uh, what's happened and what has the potential to happen is, despite what Stevie said, for the Liberals to be painted into a corner on this. You've already seen the tweet from Catherine McKenna about politics breaking your heart in terms of the walk back. Of course, that opens up a flank of criticism. The other criticism, of course, comes from the, the what about factor, the what about my region factor, the what about me factor. Yes, absolutely. Downtown Toronto is not the same as, as the Avalon, Avalon P- Peninsula at the same same time, however, uh, if you're in uh, northern British Columbia, if you're in uh, parts of Manitoba where liberal votes may not be guaranteed and probably not guaranteed, but might be up for grabs in certain areas, uh, right. Pierre Polyev now has uh, the ultimate card to play around saying, look, he's playing favorites, he's, he's cherry picking in terms of uh, who, who gets this relief. And so it opens up a whole new flank of criticism. And so this is something that for maybe half an hour was like, OK, hey. This might work. This might course correct, but of course, uh, just you know, squeezes really the problem to another part of the toothpaste tube, or has the potential to anyway. I, I think also. Well, I. I think that this is also about getting ahead of an issue. I think we're going into a cold winter. I think. There's nervousness about having stories coming out of Atlantic Canada about whether uh, about families making the decision between heating their homes or or, or feeding their families. The affordability crisis is um, 
intensifying, and the government needs to have a policy that it can point to to say, right. we heard you, we listened, we're getting ahead of it, we, we are here for you. Okay, uh, we, we have a reaction in from Pierre Polyev, who is uh, speaking uh, at a political rally in Windsor, Nova Scotia. So I want to play that clip so we can hear what the leader of the opposition had to say. Justin Trudeau, only moments ago, jumped in front of a microphone, he was sweaty, he was shaky, and he said, okay, wait a second, I was just sort of kidding about that carbon tax thing, I'm, I'm, I'm actually only going to impose it three years from now on your home heating after the election is over. But in the meantime, he's still going to impose it on your gas and diesel and on the farmers who grow the food and the truckers who ship it. But he wants you to elect him one more time no. so that if he wins, no. he will bring in a massive tax on your heat. Who is ready to ask the tax and fire All right, well, James, the Liberals will be deeply disappointed. They did not convince Pierre Polyev <laughs> with this policy change. But you can already there see the argument uh, that he's going to make, right, in Atlantic Canada, that they're doing this to buy time past the next election and, and don't fall for it. That's what it sounds like to me in terms of what he had to say. As, as, as the saying goes, if you're explaining, you're losing. So what is a Liberal to say now? We really believe in climate change and the importance of it. We really believe in carbon pri pricing as a principle around it. But we're going to climb down here. But we're going to climb back up, but not too much. And you're, now they're going to put themselves in a box to have to explain this. To Andrew's point a, a minute ago, you know, if you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, do and do something significant and remarkable. This policy, it, it, it offends Catherine McKenna. It offends the center-left base who is really ideological and built in and has been fighting for this policy for a decade, it offends them and it doesn't actually give you a substantive outcome where a lot of people might go, well, I don't know about carbon pricing, but but this is good. This is great. They're not going to get the bang and the pop on the positive end and they're going to get all the negative uh, on, on the back end. So so I think this is a, a real problem for the government uh, in a lot of ways that I think they don't perhaps recognize. And also, I think in the as well, in the macro narrative, you know, they... They abandoned sort of the fiscally responsible John Manley centrist liberals. They pushed further to the left with their coalition with the NDP. And then now, once they're on that side of the spectrum with 32% of the vote in the last election, and now you start breaking up your base and offending your mm -hmm. hard left base with a policy like this. I mean, that's like Stephen Harper having a shrinking mandate and then saying, you know what, we think the long gun registry is probably a good idea and we should keep it. <laughs> well, I mean, imagine how tectonic that would be. I think that's what this is for a lot of liberal voters. Well, well, Andrew, like uh, I, I accept that, you know, people like Catherine McKenna um, will not like this, uh, but life is very different in the Glebe neighborhood of Ottawa mm. than it is in Gander, Newfoundland, or it is in Glasgow, Nova Scotia, you know, and, and you have market opportunities and you have job opportunities and economic opportunities and government support programs that are not available to the small places of Canada, which I have lived in in my life. So uh, while I appreciate this may be seen by a lot of people as a failure of the purity test by the Liberals, a lot of people were going to have a real hard time and may still have a real hard time dealing with this in, in the poorer rural parts of the country. Yeah, I mean, this was very clearly targeted to those people who are reliant on, on heating oil. This is a very unique uh, situation in Atlanta, Canada, and I think uh, that deals with some of the concerns that Shashi's uh, outlined about, uh, you know, how this, um, you know, reflects in other parts of the country. That said, it contains another component which doubles the rebate uh, to rural uh, families in terms of the, you know, the, the, the carbon rebate. Think of it what you will. I mean, I'm not a big fan of the carbon pricing program they've got in, and 
I think the rebates themselves are, are oddly structured, but but you know they will have that messaging point that works across all of Canada that they can can speak to. To James's question though about whether this will uh, whether they can get credit for. I mean, I am mindful of you know Danielle Smith's great sleight of hand on passing along energy prices in Alberta. They managed to get her through the last election uh, and came home to roost only a few months later. This is an actual three-year freeze, uh, which seems like a lot longer runway to work with. So I I'm not sure that you know people. It'll depend, I guess, whether you know as we say, if if you want to beat a dog, you'll find a stick, and that's kind of where it's at with the Liberals. If you're inclined to go. Well, you know, they listened. Then they're going to get the benefit of the doubt. If you're inclined to say, mm. "Oh, look, you know, they've done nothing. This is just a sleight of hand. This is flash in the pan," well, then you're going to continue to be grumpy. All right, uh, gang, we're out of time. I, I appreciate the the time and the insight. Thank you to Stevie O'Brien, James Moore, Andrew Thompson, and Shachi Curl. Thanks, gang. Thanks, David. Thank you. A major shift announced last hour by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. His government is axing the tax on home heating oil right across the country for three years and making free heat pumps available to lower-income Canadians, at least in three provinces, because New Brunswick, at this point, hasn't signed on to the heat pump pilot project. I would love to see Blaine Higgs get involved. Uh, this matters in New Brunswick as it does uh, in all four Atlantic provinces. So that's a question for Blaine Higgs and the Premier and the Government of uh, New Brunswick. But we're willing partners, and as the Prime Minister mentioned, hopefully it will be four very soon. And like I said, David, other provinces that want to get involved, I think there's an open uh, olive branch there from the Government of Canada to say, let's make sure we're focused on your needs. Okay, well, that is a question we're going to ask Premier Blaine Higgs, because Premier Blaine Higgs joins me now. Premier, thanks uh, for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, thank you, David. It's nice, nice to be here. So I, I know New Brunswick has its own heat pump incentive programs, as, as many of the other provinces in Atlantic Canada do, if not all of them. But on this pilot project that the government announced today, working with Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland and Labrador right now on free heat pumps for people who make less than the median income, where are you on that? Is this something New Brunswick will sign on to? Uh, I would certainly expect so, David, because we, we've had our program in place for many months now, and it's been well received. In our case, um, um, you know, we just added another 30 million to the program, so our program is currently around 100 million. So certainly, we're we're interested to um, you know cooperate with the federal government on this and and continue to roll as many heat pumps as we can, because um, I feel that's the way to move with, on this energy file is to reduce consumption. So, uh, uh, what is your high level response to to what we saw here today? I, I mean, the government is 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 selling this as an affordability. Uh, plan to help reduce the, the, the economic burden on Atlantic Canadians, many of whom burn uh, home heating oil uh, to heat their homes. I, I mean, how effective do you think this will be in terms of dealing with those concerns? Well, certainly, uh, you know, uh, axing the tax on, on the, on the um, heating oil completely is, is a, a, a good move and a, and, a, and a good first step in the overall policy. You know, I've had some good discussions with Minister Wilkinson on, on the, the impact that the energy policies are having on Atlantic Canadians, and in um, particular, and we have we as a team here of um, uh, premiers of four Atlantic regions have have um, you know sent letters before, and I sent one myself in this regard. So this is this is good news in that sense, and it's directionally right. Um, I, I'm hopeful that what comes out of this is really to have a an evaluation of the entire carbon tax program and say, is this achieving what it was intended to achieve? Because we're certainly feeling the impact of affordability in all aspects of what we're, what we're seeing here in, in our province, but across the country. I, I mean, they do seem committed to it 
as a signature policy, even if they are tweaking it uh, somewhat here today. And, 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 and there's been a lot of criticism that it's because of their declining political fortunes in Atlantic Canada, which has been an important building block uh, to the Liberal election wins in the last three elections. What's your sense of what's motivating this? Is this the recognition the policy wasn't quite working or is like, boy, those polls, they look really bad right now? Oh, I'm sure the polls have played a role, and without doubt. Um, but I, I would say that it, it in, even in that sense, um, that's likely the biggest motivation. The, the, this should lead to an analysis of the full policy. It should say, are we achieving? We know the impact is having negatively on affordability, but is it achieving any uh, meaningful reduction in emissions? Um, compared to what it's uh, achieving negatively on people's ability to, to live and, and work and, and go about their daily lives. Um, and I think the recognition of the impact it's having in Canada, I mean, our emissions are, are like 1.5% of the world emissions. Meanwhile, in China, they're approving like two coal plants every few weeks. And, and the most ever coal plants were built in 2022. So, so let's put this in perspective. Yes, I, well, I, I know Canada is a small part of the global emissions picture, but our per capita emissions are, are quite high in, in the global rankings, and that is one of the challenges. And, and, you know, we have provinces in Atlantic Canada that also burn coal. It's not just China, and that is something I, I think we want to move away from a, a, as a country. Uh, so, so on that, I, I mean, it's a, it's a three-year pause to allow for this heat pump transition, as they say, with, with big incentives on the table, something you said you may sign on with. Is the capacity... Oh, I- David, I certainly see us signing on to it, yes. Of course, right. So, uh, uh, but, but is the capacity there to deliver heat pump transitions at the scale we're talking about here? I mean, Cody Boyce was on, and 40% of the homes in Nova Scotia y- you know, use home heating oil. I, I, I don't know if the, the, tra- the journey people and, and the trade people and just the supply of heat pumps and the capital exists to have it happen in a three-year uh, window at the scale that you're talking about here. What's your sense of it? Well, I certainly agree with that. I, I think that is going to be the challenge, and I think the same thing applied to the change in the tax rate on on building, um, you know, for apartments and and homes, because we're we're seeing more homes built than we ever have in our province for many many years, and that's happening all over. So I agree. I think there will be a limitation with our program that we have right now. We were we we increased it by another thirty million, and yes, it's going to increase the the building at a higher level, but but there will be a limitation of, of the actual capability to, to have these installations. Okay, I, I want to go back to what you were saying earlier that you think some of this is uh, being affected by what, what's happening in the polls. Um, from what I'm hearing, you're looking at the polls pretty closely uh, yourself these days. There, there's a lot of buzz that you're getting ready to call an election uh, in New Brunswick after kind of the rough spring and summer you had. Uh, you're still there and saying you plan to run again. I mean, <laughs> What's going on, Premier? Are, are people in New Brunswick going to be going to an election in the next little while? Well, you're right. It was a, a rough few few months. It's, it's true enough. Um, politics is a is a vicious game. Um, we have a throne speech that will be voted on tomorrow, and we all know that a throne speech is a confidence uh, vote. Um, so I guess we'll see where that leads. Um, I, I'm not intending to call an election tomorrow otherwise, but if, uh, if the throne speech is defeated, then, then we certainly know that that, that changes that, that decision. I, I think that being election ready is, is a necessity, and, and we will continue to do that, um, regardless of tomorrow's vote, because um, I, um, I, I think it's a prudent thing to do, and, and so we are, we are organizing, even the opposition's calling for an election, which is um, kind of an interesting twist. 
but I guess maybe that's what happens in opposition. But, but to your point, tomorrow's a confidence vote, and we'll see the outcome from that. But you still have a majority government. You're not anticipating you're going to lose a confidence vote on the throne speech, are you? Well, I have a majority government, but as you pointed out, this this uh, has been a, bit, a difficult right. um, few months, um, and and we have um, you know a few members that aren't exactly, uh, let's say, uh, solid members of caucus at this point. Right. So uh, the other thing I, I heard in your answer, and I don't want to sound like a cynical uh, reporter, you said I'm not planning on calling an election tomorrow. Uh, that's a very time limited and specific answer you gave. Um, it is. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and that that is a deliberate answer. I'm assuming, Premier. Like, are you ruling something out in the next week? Uh, where are we? Uh, well, I, it was a deliberate answer, um, most certainly. And um, and I guess my my only uh, answer to the response at this time is that we know what will happen if I lose a confidence motion, but I will proceed to get ready for an election um, because I, I feel a necessity to do that. We have instability um, certainly in, in, the, in, in, the, in, in the province right now, and, um, and I, um, there are a lot of issues that are pending that I talked about here earlier, about affordability issues, housing issues, um, and you know we have a strong track record, and, and I may be looking to, to strengthen that in the public, uh, for the public to have that opportunity to, to have a voice. Okay, that's the closest answer I've ever heard to a, I'm going to go see the lieutenant governor. I mean, that sounds like you're gearing up. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we will be gearing up. That's true. Okay. Uh, New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs, uh, if, if you do, go see the LG. Give us a call. We'll have you back on. Thanks for your time tonight. You're very welcome. Have a good day. The United Nations General Assembly held an emergency session on the Israel-Hamas war this morning. Vote to stop the killing. Vote for humanitarian aid to reach those whose very survival depends on it. Do you not think it's unbelievable that this resolution here today and this session are not solely focused on Hamas's atrocities? When reading this resolution, Hamas seems to be Missing in action. We must stand against this war in Gaza and the humanitarian catastrophe it is causing. This debate comes as the UN Security Council remains deadlocked and while Israel is calling on UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to resign over comments he made earlier this week. Guterres said the Hamas attacks didn't happen in a vacuum clarified later that the grievances of Palestinians do not justify the appalling attacks. We're going to dig further into that situation at the United Nations with Louise Blay. She served as Canadian Deputy Permanent Representative to the UN from 2017 to 2021. Louise Blay, it's nice to meet you. Thank you for coming on tonight. My pleasure to be with you this Let, evening, David. Let's start with what Secretary General Guterres said. His leadership is being questioned at the UN. Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu has called on him to resign over his remarks on the conflict, but Guterres didn't back down and instead opted to contextualize what he said. What do you make of this particular episode? Well, you know, this particular Secretary General is not exactly bold. He's been very conservative with his comments throughout his tenure. He's in his second mandate now. I think that his comments were taken out of context. Obviously, his address to the UN Security Council was very balanced, but he did channel the feeling of the majority of the member states when he did say that, yes, that the attack did not happen in the vacuum in the sense that this has been a long-standing conflict. 
And there's a great deal of sympathy at the UN for the plight of the Palestinians. There is a, a UN agency that's dedicated to taking care of Palestinians because of the, the hardship that mm -hmm. they have been facing for decades. It's interesting, though, to see Israel call for his resignation and, and then to say they're going to deny visas uh, to UN officials to go into Israel. I have no clear sense how that might complicate their work um, um, in this situation. Uh, but this doesn't seem like a helpful development, given what's happening, for, for, for relations to break down so completely like this, potentially. No, no, it isn't. And obviously, the Secretary General is not going to be Israel's choice for mediator once there is a political process in place, that's for sure. But uh, I, I predict that Israel will have to back down on, on their stance. Um, I think they're feeling the heat. Um, obviously, the world has been appalled at the attacks on October 7th, but it's been two weeks now, and there's been a lot of bombings, and there's been a lot of suffering on the Palestinian side. So there is a sense, uh, you know, the world didn't have a chance to react on October 7th. It happened, it ended in a matter of a day. But now the bombings have been going on for several days with with a lot of images that are difficult mm. to take, and the, the, the member states are expecting a member of the UN Security Council to uphold the UN Charter. Hamas is not a member of the UN of the uh, of the UN, right. and so this is this is the difference. Uh, yes, Israel feels that it's being held to a higher standard, but it, it is a member state, so so it should. So they're feeling the pressure, and we're seeing this right now. And I think they'll have to absorb that and and adjust accordingly. Yeah, there, there is a structural imbalance baked into this in terms of global expectations, right? Because Israel is a democratic state and a member of the UN, as you say, and Hamas is a designated terrorist organization in Canada and, and a lot of other countries around the world, right? So the expectations are different. Uh, but, but, you know, while that sort of has played out uh, between Israel and, and the UN, the UN Security Council is trying to deal with this, and you know, if something comes from Russia, it ends up getting vetoed by the U.S. side. If something comes from the U.S., it ends up getting vetoed by the Russian side, and, and it's just paralyzed. So, so, what can the Security Council and the UN actually do in a situation like this? Well, it's pretty clear that not very much. Mm. Unfortunately, it was the same with the, the Russian Federation invasion in Ukraine. The UN Security Council is totally polarized and paralyzed. I mean, yesterday it was really disheartening to see that they were arguing over semantics when people are dying. And so much so that now the General Assembly did the right thing. They said, okay, enough is enough. You're not able to settle this. We will call an emergency session under the Uniting, uh, United for Peace, um, which has been in place for a long time, but seldom used. And now they've moved the debate inside the General Assembly, where you're having a little bit more of a democratic airing out of where the world stands. You know, when you learn about the United Nations when you're in school and the idea of how it's supposed to function, it seems like the perfect entity for a situation like this. And uh, it seems as if they're not being listened to in, in the broader geopolitical sort of argument that's happening, right? It's sort of the regional powers and the great powers like the United States, you know, trying to, to influence what's happening between Israel and Hamas. And right now, we, there's an inability to negotiate a consistent flow of humanitarian aid uh, into a you know, into a, a small area of land that is a, a theater of war, but also a, a, a humanitarian disaster. Uh, so how, 
I mean, what is the diplomatic path forward on, on this, Louise, to sort of ease some of the suffering of, of people right now in, in that part of the world? Well, the UN is part of the equation, but it's not the only equation. But I'm very pleased to see that there this emergency session. It will continue tomorrow. Jordan is putting forward a resolution that will be voted on probably tomorrow that calls for uh, a ceasefire and, and humanitarian aid. I haven't read the text. It's probably being negotiated at the moment. I think all eyes should be on that tomorrow because it's you're going to see how much support it, it garners, mm-hmm. who the sponsors are, because there's many ways in which you can offer support. You can vote for or abstain, or you can also sponsor. So tomorrow, I think, is a very important day that will give um, Israel and Hamas a real uh, uh, picture of where the world is at. And I hopefully give a lot of civilians that are affected hope that uh, that the UN, if it doesn't have a binding resolution in the General Assembly, at least it has the moral ground and it can, it can help uh, those other channels that are happening, whether with the United States or Qatar or Egypt and the other players that are now trying to negotiate some sort of a ceasefire. Um, they'll, right. be, they'll be helped and informed by what's happening at the UN. It's, it's, it's an ecosystem of diplomacy that is absolutely fundamental. Okay. Louise Blay, we're out of time, but thank you so much uh, for joining us tonight. We appreciate your insight. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.